Welcome to Lyme Time. I'm Allie from the Tick Chicks. We are all more than Lyme disease and chronic illness, and together we stand with you to overcome and rise. I'll bring you closer to the experts in cutting-edge treatments and even a few unexpected ways of healing. I'll ask the questions you want answers to regarding Lyme disease and successful ways of getting you closer to 100%. We are in this together and will not be defined by Lyme. So today on Lyme Time, I am welcoming Dr. David Traster, who is one of my favorite people to speak about neurological Lyme disease. Um, we have a history together. He has spoken at losing, losing Lyme Retreat, and I wanted to tell you a little bit about him. Dr. Traster is a globally recognized expert in the field of neurological rehabilitation. He lectures and consults for doctors of all specialties across the world relating to patients with a variety of neurological disorders. The conditions Dr. Traster works most with are dizziness, dysautonomia, brain injuries, and concussions, and even I'll throw in there with elite athletes, uh, chronic pain, headaches, walking and balance disorders, movement disorders, cognitive disorders, and developmental disorders. So welcome, Dr. Traster. How you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you. Thanks for joining us um, again. And I just kind of want to start out by going a little bit backwards in time. And if you could share a little bit about how your journey has been personally and how you wound up being so interested in working with neurological rehabilitation. Yeah, to make a very long story very short, um, I was a pretty good basketball player. I had a concussion when I was 13, and that's probably when some of my symptoms started. Um, and then I had surgery at 17 and woke up from shoulder surgery really sick. And from 17 years old to about 25, 26 years old, no one could figure out what was wrong with me. And I finally got diagnosed with Lyme disease. And so around 2006-ish, um, you know, I started my journey of understanding Lyme disease. And that's probably similar to a lot of people from under, I'm trying to understand, you know, don't remember seeing a tick on me. Yeah. It's a very, very common area. story, isn't it? Just, yeah, um, I don't really remember a bullseye rash, right? Like, you know, but the pie was the only test that ever came back positive was the Lyme testing, right? Um, through hygienics, right. For whatever that's worth for people that are watching, um, you know, but, um, everything else was normal. So we started treating Lyme and asking the questions, you know, what is Lyme? Why is it here? Why there's so many other infections with spirochetes? You know, why are the co-infections there? Why is it so close to Connecticut and New York? You know, all these questions that people could ask that are looking, right? And having visibility of what's going on. And then also how do you treat this thing, right? And so from your perspective, and that's, I think a lot of people are at Lyme is looking at what can I do or take to kill infections or maybe improve my immune function. And I think there's a new wave that's been going on for a while, but it's picking up speed finally of saying, what can I do for my brain? Right. And that's what I want to talk today. Um, what can I do for my brain part? Not just what can I, what herb can I take? What homeopathy can I take? What drug can I take? Um, like what else can I do? You know, and that's where you see some of the emotional training programs, Olympic training. You see some more people doing cold plunges, 
red light therapies and all those cool things, vagus nerve stim. Um, but the question is, can we do things more specifically to people's symptoms? That's great. That kind of brings me up to speed and kind of wanting to, to dive into that a lot today, because for some reason, you know, a Lyme, Lyme can just present itself in many different ways. Some people have uh, more gross motor skill issues. Some people have the dysautonomia and that can come and go. So that's confusing. Um, so a lot of people have optic issues. Um, and a lot of people have been coming forward lately and saying that they have trouble walking in the beginning, that they almost feel as though they've broken their foot and it's just so painful uh, and and yet there's nothing wrong. So I'm imagining all of these fall under the category of neurological Lyme. <laughs> but how do Lyme disease symptoms relate back to the nervous system? Without a doubt. So let's like start really simple because things are very complicated and there's only so much we know, right? The nervous system is the very different than every other system in your body, your digestive system, your cardiovascular system. Every system is extremely important, but just from the day that two cells come together and people are born, um, things are a little different in the nervous system, right? Um, you've got a hundred cells or so that start off in like a column. And then it turns into about a hundred billion brain cells and a hundred billion immune cells by the, you know, by the time you're born, which is incredible. Right. Um, so that first off is incredible, but what's different about the nervous system from a diagnostic perspective, like you're talking about is the way these cells connect. Right. And the nervous system, for example, you have, when you look at movement, and let's say I want to move my toe, right? Well, there's a lot of cells and neurons, brain cells that are involved with this. There is one cell that goes from the top of the left part of your head all the way down to like close to your tailbone, you know, your low back area-ish. And that's one cell, right? And then you have another cell that takes from your low back area and goes down through your tailbone and goes to your toe. Those are like Okay, I never knew that. I never knew cells would be <laughs> yeah, so large. Uh, you're yeah, always yeah, taught right? that they're very microscopic. And most cells are, but yeah. now we're the nervous system, right? And that's where, again, I think there's an over-assumption that everything, all cells are equal. And all cells are different, obviously, when they differentiate, right? But the nervous system is a little different, right? And just the way it communicates and connects, it... And so if you think about that, that's two cells in your body that go from your head to your opposite toe, just two cells. And the question becomes, you can have the same finding if the injury is in the top of your head, anywhere on that cell down to your spinal cord, that could all look the same, mm -hmm. right? And then from your spinal cord all the way out to your toe, that could all look the same. You know, one could look more outside your nervous system or your central nervous system, one inside, and so the point being is that it's the only system to make a differential. You got to know the anatomy first and say, where is it in the nervous system that could produce these type of symptoms, right? And so before you can start talking about symptoms, and we'll talk about all those, you first need to have an understanding of what the anatomy is. And I make the argument that most people don't know the brain very well. They know psychology better. And things that make sense aren't necessarily true, right? I'm and sure that's true for, for physicians as well. 
the world, right? The world the in world, general, right? right? Not Doctors everybody is a brain world. expert. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, you go to the doctor with um, an issue with walking and they're going to be starting off with looking at your, your feet and your, your bone structure and muscles and all that, as opposed to an overall neurological symptom. And sometimes they're the best people to look at your foot because you got a foot issue, <laughs> you know? So everyone is, you know, but if it's nervous system, you got to know the anatomy. So then to answer your question, if you've got dysautonomia and let, for example, your heart is perfectly normal, right? And all these tests are normal. Um, you're probably looking at a problem in somewhere regulation in an area called your brainstem, right? And kind of areas in your medulla, or you're looking at areas that are a little higher up in like parabrachial nucleus area. You could look higher up in your midbrain, your periarchoductal gray. You could look at areas in your insular anterior singlet. You could look at areas in your cerebellum. All these areas are integrated and can give you some similar findings. Then the question becomes, what kind of dysautonomia do you have? Is your heart rate high and your blood pressure is normal? Is your heart rate high and your blood pressure drops? Is your heart rate and blood pressure both high? Do you have a heart rate variability issue? Do you have a blood flow brain regulation issue? Um, do you have some obstructive artery disease or something? You know, like this, these are all variations of dysautonomia, which all could be clues to different factors if you've got a movement problem, like, or I'll say it differently, I'd break the brain down to three ways. When you look at the brain, you could say parts of your brain deal with your perception. Okay. Right? How you feel, what's touching you, right? Um, just overall, you know, things that you're seeing, things that you're hearing, right? Um, just overall environmental perception that allows you to know where you are in space, right? How you feel your body. Um, that's your perception, right? Um, how your body knows where your heart is, where your liver is, you know, all these things, your brain must have a two-way street to know this is where my heart is and this is how I control these muscles, right? And so that's perception. So you get feedback from different receptors or you get information into your brain that tells you information about your body. And I make the case, your, your brain's more like an operating system than anything, right? And we all got different apps and our apps are a little different. Um, but you could think of your brain as like an operating system. So it's got to get feedback from your body to tell it what's going on and how to regulate things. Cause your brain controls everything. Mm -hmm. And then you've got like a movement area. And when you look at your movement area, what's interesting about the brain is the nervous system really does one thing that we can measure really well. And it contracts a muscle. It might be an eye muscle. It might be a skeletal muscle on your arm or leg. It might be a heart muscle in your heart. It might be a blood vessel and a muscle and an artery, right? So, there, so there's different types of muscles and you can contract them reflexively without thinking about it. You could contract them thinking about it, moving your arms, and you can contract them rhythmically, like breathing, right? Or like your heart rate without thinking, just rhythmatically, right? And these, that's what your brain does. It can track muscles. And so if you've got a problem, parts of your brain that deal with movement, you could have more movement disorders and your thinking can be perfectly clear. You could feel everything perfect, right? And so some people have movement disorders that's more in the movement areas, and their sensory and feeling is fine. Some people have movement disorders, but their feeling is bad, right? And their movement's bad because they can't feel things as well, or they feel things abnormally, or they feel an arm, and the arm's not even there anymore, right? And you see all these different perceptual issues. And then you've got like a third area that I would call more like cognitive, emotional memory, motivation, right? And so it's like this other thing that as humans, psychologically, we, it's harder for us to put our finger on, right? 
because motivations are a lot of subconscious and we think we know we're motivated to do, but a lot of it is, you know, if that was true, there'd be no, no addictions, right? Um, you know, when you look at cognition, cognition is very humanistic, right? But the other animals have some form of cognition. So what exactly is IQ, you know, but no other animals watching this podcast, right? And so humans are a little different, right? And you've got emotions, right? All animals have emotions. We can think a little bit, hopefully more than our emotions, but our emotions drive memory, drive experience, drive motivation. It's so this whole other area that problems there can give you thinking problems, anxiety, depression, addictions, um, low motivation, right? Um, it can affect the areas of your brain that release dopamine, right? When you look at the midbrain, that people might be more susceptible to Parkinson's or gait disorders. It affects more those areas that deal with locomotion in the midbrain. Um, people be more susceptible to balance issues or dizziness if they're lower down toward the vestibular nuclei. Um, so long story short, it's complicated, but it's like an operating system and we all have apps that do similar things. And when those apps get buggy, we develop symptoms. The benefit for most of us is we're born with like a hundred billion cells. But what makes humans really unique, in my opinion, right? I think there's like a narrative humans aren't unique. I disagree. I think what makes humans unique is that like I got ducks, right? And I got these ducks in my yard and if we live behind like a pond. And so about a week ago, all of a sudden, you notice this duck sitting on my ground in front of my yard. And I'm like, that's weird. And I'm like, I wonder if it's laying eggs, right? And so the duck leaves and then we look, it's like two eggs and three eggs. And a week later, it's got like nine eggs there now, right? And then ducks sitting there. I got a lookout, the male duck's looking this way. I got like a cousin duck looking that way. <laughs> so it's like a whole lookout for her just to sit there on these net, on these eggs. These guys are going to hatch. You know what they're going to do? They're going to probably walk. <laughs> right off the bat like that's amazing that's amazing humans, right humans can't do that and there's a reason humans don't do that is because it takes us longer than any other animal that we know of to develop our brain right and it takes a while for this thing to grow and for us to really control everything things are really complicated and then you look at the nervous system especially and this goes it's going to bring it back to lyme and all different things when you look at the nervous system you're born with like 100 of those cells and then you got these glial cells, right? These immune cells that kind of go from like these ventricular areas, like these like midline areas, and they branch out to the out like a spider web almost. And these brain cells start traveling, right? And layering until you have like multiple layers in the brain that make up the brain, right? And then the different animals have different layers. We've got a lot of layers compared to other people, right? And so you got like a lot of sandwich of brain cells and each part of the sandwich does different things, but it originates by traveling around immune cells and then immune cells come and myelinate them, right? And the nervous system and the immune system are hand in hand. And the way that our brain develops is through experience. It's through feedback from our environment. And then the brain then learns what cells can be what, like it's the genes in the environment that differentiate these cells into what they're gonna do. And so you wanna be really careful the first three years, especially, but definitely the first seven years of messing with the immune system. Right. Let's be real. And I'm not, I'm not going to make specifics, but like, it could be anything, but immune problems directly relate. The immune systems what like cuts up and I relate to like, you've got a beautiful, you got a beautiful block, right? And you're like Michelangelo, right? And so you get this beautiful block and you're like, it's amazing. It's like a ton, but what you're going to end up doing is cutting off half of that block and you're going to sculpt out like a beautiful sculpture. And that's your brain. 
and it's the immune system that's cutting that up, right? And so when you look at immune dysregulation, you start realizing it goes hand in hand with the brain, whether it's developmentally or later on in life. And then you start realizing when you look at the brain, whether it's immune system problems, infections, inflammation, your brain cells have a very programmed cell death. And like I told you, the, the day you're born, like, you know, when you develop, half your brain cells are already dead by like, you know, suicide, right? You know, so you got like planned suicide and all these brain cells that you try your best to stop it, right? right. And you try your best to keep turning it off. And no matter what causes it, your brain has a very stereotypical way of kind of calling it quits. And whether you catch it like winding down before it goes, goes or whether you catch it after it dies, um, the consequence is the same. Uh, mechanisms very much are similar, but there are differences, right, between different conditions. Um, but sometimes the treatments don't have to be vastly different when you look at the brain. It comes down to creating better connectivity is and hope that you're not too late. So, so for our Lyme patients out there, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure they're curious to know how, how a, a bacteria from a bug, an insect, mm-hmm. a vector, um, can get into our bloodstream. And then how does it, how exactly does it spread to different area? You know, I mean, how could we avoid it spreading into brain tissue? Is there any way to do that? How does it spread? How come some people get heart, you know, my myocarditis, Lyme carditis with it. Some people get neuro and, and all that. Can you explain that? It's the million dollar question, right? Um, I would start off by saying that because of modern testing, it's unclear what people were like 100 years ago or 200 years ago, right? We can make assumptions and we could look at different things, but when it comes to autoimmunity, when it comes to antibodies, like it's, people are also dying a lot younger, right? And part of that is cardiology and things like that. Um, but it's hard to say what's different now than before. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know. I think when you look at these bugs, to the best of my knowledge, were my perspective, right? is we all have got different bacteria inside of us, both good and bad, um, viruses, both good and bad, parasites. You know, we all have got microbes. And part of our job as far as our immune system and our nervous system is to keep them at bay and keep the good guys beating the bad guys, right? And keep the bad guys low and the good guys high and try to keep them in the correct place. What seems tricky about Lyme disease, especially, but it's probably more than Lyme, right? Um, right. But we're going to say Lyme, keep it simple, but it's probably more. And it might be more, even just more than Lyme in a tick, right? It might be these other tick-borne infections that yeah. can do it too, right? Yeah, sure. But what makes it tricky is when they go intracellular. And what makes it tricky is if they can't hop in a red or a white blood cell and take a ride, Right. Or if they can go into a cyst form and hide, or if they can go to a biofilm and hang out, or, you know. And so that's where it makes it a little trickier, is I think, in my perspective and looking at the history, is trying to better appreciate not what spirochetes of Lyme disease does, but what does a spirochete mixed with a parasite, mixed with a bee, you know, what does the compilation of different microbes that are hanging on? It's one thing to have a bad neighbor. It's another thing to live in like a no police zone. Right. Right. And it's so like, I think when you start looking at why do all of a sudden these ticks have all these infections from around the world, 
you know, and how do those play into tricking your immune system, right? And how much of this is a chronic infection? How much of this is an autoimmunity? How much of this is a combination? How much of us have Lyme and are asymptomatic? Yeah. I mean, look at COVID, right? Um, we don't know everything about COVID, but this is what we do know is it attacked more vulnerable things. And as a clinician, what I can tell you is we see both post-COVID and both COVID vaccine injury. And I can tell you, they both look relatively similar. And it both seems like people don't have new things. Most people have stuff they've dealt with their whole life that's either been at bay or it wasn't that bad. Right. And it's have spiked, right? And so it seems like COVID was so, maybe it got into the cells so quickly, you know, whatever it may be, maybe it was so inflammatory, maybe it's a spike, but who knows, right? Um, but we do know is it seems like the weaker areas are more vulnerable. Yes. You look at why Lyme people get different things. Is there a probability of dumb luck? Probably. But is there also a probability of genetics and vulnerability, you know, in which the I immune system so. are vulnerable and they so. can kind of hang out? Yeah. You know, it's a kink in the armor and it might go there first. It might yeah. continue spreading, obviously, but that's my, that might be where it's just, it can do the most damage the most quickly. doesn't have maybe enough defenses there. But for the um, brain, but let's talk about the brain, right? Um, the brain has neurovascular coupling, meaning that when you look at the brain, what should happen is with brain activity should come blood flow right? It should happen, right? Part of brain injuries, concussions is they actually, people think you, some of your blood pressure in your brain gets lower because too much blood will be too much activity for brain areas. They got to recover before it normalizes. Um, so when you look at neurovascular coupling, the more brain activity, more blood flow, more blood flow, more nutrients, immune cells, everything, right? That's how we transfer stuff and take away waste. And so when you look at blood and you look at Lyme, the most active parts of the brain are typically an area called your cerebellum an area called your basal ganglia. And so this is theoretically why people think these are the ones that get most impacted by infections and toxins is because these guys are kind of subconsciously always on mm. and always active mm. and doing all these subconscious processes. So there's a lot of blood flow that goes with that. And so when you look at any toxins, infections, things like that, theoretically, they shouldn't cross the blood brain, uh, the blood brain barrier, except for this one area that should kind of be able to taste the blood and be able to create like an correct response. But people have barrier issues, it turns out, right? And we don't know if that's always been the case. We don't know if it's concussions, inflammation, EMFs, who knows, right? I don't know. Um, but what I do know is it seems like people have more digestive issues, leaky gut. You know, maybe it's all gluten. Maybe it's the food we've eaten. Maybe it's the air. I mean, I don't know. What I do know is people are being more poisoned by their own foods, even good foods. You know, they're eating and they're being reacting to it in a negative way, right? Which is, you know, if you eat something, your immune system reacts to it like it's a foreigner, it's poison, mm. right? And so people are being poisoned by their own food for some reason. And the next person that's sitting next to you at the restaurant might not be, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, who, it, again, we could spend all day talking about why, but that's the reality that we do know, right? And I, I'd like to talk a little bit about your practice because, you know, I, I would imagine a lot of listeners, they have neurological Lyme or they suspect they do. And we can only understand so much as being a layman. Um, but can in your experience, have you seen neurological Lyme be reversed? Number one, I'll start with that, that question. Of course, right, for sure. Um, you know, all the time, but 
everyone's got different symptoms that could be from different reasons that have been called neurological Lyme. So I don't put anyone in one box. Um, the question becomes, what have they done before? Like for our clinic, for example, let's say you call up, you have neurological Lyme. It's the same conversation, like what therapies have you already done? And like, how far into treatment have you done? Like, have you responded to treatment, right? Because people, there's a lot of good Lyme specialists out there and there's a lot of places that don't have them, but there's more and more people understand Lyme better. Uh, there's also a lot of people that are doing more standardized protocols that some people get help by, right? Um, so, you know, ozone Myers cocktail for some people is amazing. For some people, it's nothing. It's a waste of money. We, who knows why, you know, um, but it's, right. it's the reality of the world. Um, so that's step one. And then step two is kind of saying, look, like you can have a incident, create a symptom that incident can leave and that symptom can stay. And you see that a lot with dizziness, right? Or you can see with some dysautonomia, you can see with brain, you know, so there are things that happen in the brain. Um, that can cause symptoms that can maintain, even though the problem is not really there anymore. At the same time, like you look at what I know that our clinic does and what I think the future of healthcare is going to move toward. Not that we're going to replace anything, but like when you look at where our clinic is definitely moving more toward mm -hmm. is what's called neuromodulation. And it's already what we do, but we're doing it at a better rate. And the whole game and the whole understanding is when you look at the brain, there's two factors is how many brain cells do you have left? And a lot of us have a lot of brain cells left, right? That's usually not, unless you have a massive stroke or, you know, a massive germ disorder. Like most of us are working with the good number that we can make work. And then the question too, is what are those connections like, right? One cell in your cerebellum could connect to 160,000 other cells. 160,000, you know, like it's crazy, right? It's crazy. A lot of other places is 10,000. 10,000 is big enough. Like that's enough connections, but 106. So like, it's really complicated. And the way that our brain is connected determines our behavior and function. And this is like, I have a kid who I love to death as my patient, right? And he has MS now and he's doing amazing by working with us and working with the immunologist doing stem cells. And this immunologist, I mean, he's not cheap but he does a patented therapy that he gives you immune, immune therapy that forces your bone marrow to create its more of its own stem cells. It's incredible. Like, you know, but it's extremely incredible. expensive. Yeah. It really is. It's so yeah. incredible. And I'm so excited about all the possibilities. It's you know, incredible. For MS, much less Lyme disease and, and every other neurological issue. That's, that's so exciting. It's incredible. But here's the deal with him, right? He fixes people's immune systems. He's never seen anyone get better with MS because he hasn't touched the brain. So even when their immune system gets better and this kid came in and he was shaking and he looked like he was ataxic, which is really difficult, but his eyes were shaking. And in a day, we got rid of his ataxia. Wow. A day, which wasn't MS. It was a Permanently? Yeah, it hasn't came back since. By doing eye exercise for a day. Now, most people taxi, that's not going to work, right? But he just happened. We were able to see it was an eye movement problem. It uh -huh. was called petular nystagmus. Okay. And so the second we stabilized his eyes, he was shaking because his world was shaking. But the reason I bring him up is he was diagnosed with autism before MS. And he is big in the neuroatypical world, being like, you know, like it's okay to be neuroatypical, right? And I'm not, and I don't disagree with them, right? I think it's great, but my conversation is more about the brain and what is neuroatypical and how does neuroatypical change your perception of yourself in the world? Because I'll make the case that, and it's nothing personal, it's not a guy, it's nothing against anybody, right? 
But at the end of the day, our brain creates our reality. And when you look at what we believe has happened over thousands of years, there's been certain pathways in our brain that have evolutionarily stayed stable. And there are certain areas of your brain that change and are like fingerprints for everybody and everyone's different. And when you look at neuroatypical, it's people are being developed in ways that we've never seen before. And if one out of six dogs was being born that couldn't walk or couldn't bark, people would freak out. And if it was one out of six in Jersey and one out of 10 in another state and one out of 20 in another state, the world would freaking shut down for these dogs. My opinion. Oh, of course. We, we live for our dogs. We live for our dogs. <laughs> what you would see. You know, but with and human it's, beings. But it's okay. You know, yeah. like it's, it's, it's psychologically, does it, because once you're born, that's you. And your connections, that's my point before you could say, we're going to say that's that fingerprint is your connections. And my job is to look at everyone from the second you have a hundred cells of what connections in your brain were formed to make you, you, and then what happened in your life that altered those connections to give you the behaviors and functions and everything about you as a consequence to actually your brain connectivity. And then what can I do to do therapies to strengthen these connectivity pathways? No different than I want to strengthen a muscle in your body. And so every patient is actually super interesting because every patient you dive into like how they developed, how they were impacted in life, whether it's emotional or that's physical or infectious and how they present to you and their belief system might be wildly inappropriate, but it's very accurate to them. So what would you tell somebody who was experiencing a lot of neurological Lyme symptoms? And I know you have two locations, one in Florida and the other in, is it Chicago? We've got one in Chicago and then another in like the West suburbs of Chicago. And then we're opening up a fourth in Wisconsin. Okay. And you have the Florida. And the Florida, book or tell okay. that's where I'm at. Okay, perfect. So, so that's a big commitment for somebody with neurological Lyme, but let's just mm -hmm. say nobody in their area knows how to treat it, mm -hmm. is not skilled. They maybe want a chemical free uh, option, which is what you offer. Yep. And they're looking at the cost and the bottom line. I get this question all the time. You know, you got better because you have resources. What would you say to them? Number one, everything in our clinic in the five to 10 years will be very accessible for at-home way cheaper, right? That's the way of the world is everything, not everything. Most things I do in my clinic, we're just, based on my training and the people I worked for, I'm usually about 10 years ahead of the game, right? And so what used to work 10, 15 years now, now you see a lot of the super physical therapists doing also, okay, concussion, right? And so 10, 15 years ago, concussion was the unspoken problem that we were being yelled at because we were treating and everyone else was telling them to be in a dark room because you're going to hurt yourself if you do anything, right? Right. 10, 15 years later, concussion is now a thing that people are treating kind of like we were treating 10, 15 years ago. This decade is more like dysautonomia is being yes. treated like that. We're starting to recognize it a little more and yeah. we're starting to see the things that we've done in the past now being used a little more by more functional cardiology. You know, you're starting to see more things like that. And, but the real thing is the mental health side of things, right? The anxiety, the depressions, the cognition, you know, and, and, and what people are realizing more and more is the sometimes the necessity, but the limitation of medication, right? Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't make it good or bad, but it might not be everything that you really hope and dream for. 
And so the future is improving brain connections, which involves like what we do in our clinic, whether it's neurofeedback, transcranial alternating current, direct current, photobiomodulation, PEMF, random noise stimulation, all of these things stimulate the brain in a unique way. It's taken me six years to find a company that would sell me a unit that's not, because I'm not a researcher and I don't have an IRB, right? And so a lot of this stuff I can't even get access to and the units that I can get are not good. And so most of the stuff on the market's not good, you know? And so now I'm finally, as a clinician, able to get access to some of this that's in research for the last 10 years, 15 years, I've been reading and teaching forever. And so, which means the next five or 10 years, it'll be accessible to other people. That's just how it works. You know, I did a vagal nerve stimulation lecture 10 years ago, right? It's taken almost 10 years for all of a sudden GammaCore and Truvaga and all these other ones to come out and start being more accessible. So that's step one. Everything's going to be more accessible. Um, step two, look, our Illinois clinics take insurance, right? Like yeah, Florida, I can't, you know? Um, so there are clinics out there that do do it, um, but there's no doubt. I tell people all the time, the unfortunate reality is investment, but it's not like a one week investment. Every patient that comes and sees me, it's like a three to six month program, right? And so you're pretty much doing, you know, to make, it's like learning how to play a piano or learning how to dance or learning a sport. Like you can't do it overnight yet. We don't have the chips yet in our brain to somehow figure out things in a, in a day. Right. It takes a lot of repetition, right? And so this, when you want to change your brain, I always tell people, I'm more like a coach and you're the one that does it all. Like I don't do anything. Right. I'm the one that kind of, my job is to make a correct diagnosis and make you understand why you have your symptoms and tell you in 2023, what your best options are to make your brain better. But then every day it's up to you. And for some people after like two to three months, they're so good. They don't have to do it anymore. Um, or they do it because it keeps making it better. And other people, it's like, you get dystonia. It might be a daily thing. Like that's a genetic, you know, like there are things that like brushing your teeth, you're fighting kind of a battle and some part of your brain is over like migraines, dystonias. Um, you know, I keep going with certain disorders. These are like overactivity. That's like bad plasticity, you know, anxiety in a lot of cases, like you have too much activity in certain areas and you want to actually reduce that activity, right? So neuroplasticity could go the wrong way really quickly, you know? Uh, so you want to figure out how do you reduce the bad stuff, increase the good stuff and how do you know when to do it? And so that's the future. And although it's an investment, A, it's not an investment for everybody, especially with Lyme. Okay. a lot of people, if you're chronically infected or chronically inflamed, these therapies are great, but they might not create the long lasting outcome you want until that gets settled. Mm. And so from Lyme, I think you look at it as like a oversimplifying this, right? But I look at Lyme as like a three-tiered approach. What can we do to improve your microbial balance? Right. Like what, what can we do for that side of it? Cause that alone is complicated and can deal with a lot. And that's where a lot of people live in Lyme, right? What can we do to microbial balance? What kind of antimicrobial, like, you know, how do we kill stuff? Right. That's how our brain works. I got infected. Like let's start a war. Despite yeah. the fact that no one's won a war in how long, right? Wars <laughs> never, any disease, any country wars never are end and they cost too much money and no one ever wins. Right. And so I don't fight anything, but I would say, can we get better microbial balance? over here, can we get better immune function over here? And whether that is a vitamin D supplement to stem cells, right? Like, you know, then the variations in between from curcumin to berberine to TH1 versus TH2 versus TH17. Like, so we do different pa simple panels, right? We 
we're not too complicated, but we look at different immune function and say, despite what you have, what's your immune system doing, right? Like what's your infection panel look like? What's your immune panel look like? And then what's your brain look like? Because your brain controls everything, right? And what you see in life, let me tell you how aging works. You get 100 billion cells, it gets down to like 50, 60 pretty quick. And then it's just a, it's just a ride down. that's all it is right and then it comes down to how many cells you maintain and how well they're connected as far as your behavior and our brain has incredible ability to compensate and so people ignore subtle signs for way too long until they're not subtle anymore and then most of the time it's too late for a lot of people by the time you have a parkinsonian tremor almost 80% to 90% of your dopamine cells and your substantia nigra have died on wow. both sides, depending, it doesn't matter what side the tremor is for a lot of people. And what we think, which goes back to your line question, what we think happens is it starts in your gut and it starts kind of in your nose. And it takes years for these proteins to slowly travel up your nerves, which is why I think some people think vagus nerve stimulation is like the worst thing you could do in pre-Parkinson's because you might actually stimulate, we don't know. Some people cut the vagus nerve in Parkinson's think it's the best thing in the world. And so, right, everything has two ways and two arguments, but we think it takes years to get up there. So by the time it finally gets in your brain, that's like 20, 30 years, right? And so when you look at Lyme, what's tricky about Lyme is, can it give you like, like we just got a new system that looks at heart rate variability, pulse, blood pressure, et cetera. But I could also check like, um autonomic neuropathies, right? Because the question is, is the Lyme on the nerve? Forget about your brain, right? Is it on your nerve, killing your nerve, causing chronic pain everywhere? And you you can do a test. You can use this machine. A sweat test. Biopsy is the best way, Um, but a sweat test is 80% accurate and it's just like a scan. And so we just got that last week, you know? And so we see so much dysautonomia and we're saying, and a lot of people have for really tough reasons. So even from a value perspective, what can we do to diagnose it better? So right. we're looking at deep breathing. We're looking at tilt table. We're looking at valsalvin, different brainstem reflexes while we look at heart rate variability, live pulse, live blood pressure, live breathing rate, live. And we're getting a whole picture. And at the end, we're able to say it's your parasympathetic centers. It's your sympathetic centers. It's both. This is where your breathing should create your heart rate variability. You're not getting enough, you know, vagal tone to your heart. And so we're able to start really differentiating different dysautonomias versus saying, take more magnesium, which might be great. Or, you know, take more ozone. And it's like, it's more general approaches right. versus saying, why do you have your symptoms? What part of the brain's involved in that? Is that a connectivity issue? And can we make those connections stronger? And can we build those connections so you don't have your symptoms anymore? You're better control of your body. Because when you lose those connectivities, you lose control and you get symptoms. For a lot of people, that's what happens. But if it's so inflamed, causing the connection to be bad. You got to hit fix that first while you do it. But some people, the inflammation is there, but it's not relevant. You just got to fix the connections. And I, I imagine POTS goes into that, that whole category as well. I'm seeing a lot of that associated with Lyme, Lyme disease, or for whatever reason, so some, for some people it, it presents as POTS. Maybe they had it before Lyme. We don't know. But remember POTS is an abnormal increase in heart rate from like positions, right? From lying to standing, everything else should be normal. But what you do see in POTS is a lot of variability, right? And so what you see in POTS is what's called a lot of orthostatic hypotension, people's blood pressure drops, their heart rate spikes. 
And then if you give a beta blocker, they'll feel worse, right? So there's different variables or their heart rate spikes only when they move, but if you move their head, it doesn't spike. Or, you know, so you've got different reasons to have heart rate spikes. And the question is, is it hyperadrenergic? Is there blood pressure drop? Is there an anxiety component? Is there a breathing component? You know? And it comes down to why does that person's, and or when they're lying down, is it high? Is it just tachycardia just lying down? Is there an arrhythmia in there? I mean, we have patients that come in who've got family histories of arrhythmias and they've had concussions, they still get missed. Right. And we're the ones being like, look, go to the cardio. That's why we bought the machines. We're done sending people to cardiologists. Like, let's just do it here. Right. Um, and just catch it right here. But yeah, so it's all to your point, it's all the things you're seeing more of. POTS can be for a lot of reasons, including immune. Right. And so there's POTS could be for so many different reasons. It goes back to why do you have your POTS? You know, why do you have your dysautonomia? And what I found from my experience from Lyme disease patients, what I expect when someone calls or comes in with dysautonomia with Lyme is everything from their brain is relatively normal. And it's really specific to the blood pressure heart rate area. Okay. But I don't expect to see anything else wrong. I expect them to be tired and fatigued and just, you know, maybe some pain, but just like wiped out all the time. Okay. Anything more than that is abnormal to me. Right. And so some people come in with POTS and they've got other stuff besides just like that. But if anything, if you come in and you've got any eye problems, any pain, any anxiety, you know, all these things, anxiety goes to POTS to an extent. But if you've got other findings like dizziness, other than lightheaded and spinning, these are all different things. Right. And so people get put into boxes, but everyone in that box is not the same. And I always tell my staff, it's like, you got to put people in the right box medically but then you got to understand the physiology of each person and realize why they're different. And then you got to treat everyone different, despite the fact that diagnosis is the same. Correct. Uh, I, I think right. that's why a lot of Lyme literate practitioners such as yourself, you know, they can be a little pricey because they're, they're literally going in and uncovering thousands and thousands of layers, as mm -hmm. opposed to just a general practitioner who's, taking their best guess. You guys are so trained and really, really getting down and peeling back the layers and, and treating it on a neurological level, which is incredible. Yeah, it's all relative, right? Because at the end of the day, I try not doing, like, for example, I don't like blood work. I can do it and I have no problem doing a lot of it, but I don't like it. You know, it costs a lot of money and it's variable, especially with Lyme, right? So I don't love it. Um, so like Lyme testing alone could cost you a few thousand bucks. Right. And so then you can look at like where people are at. I teach, like we've talked about this, people go broke treating Lyme more than I think people get better. Yeah. Right? And, and, and is, it sounds like your approach is, is really addressing the symptoms, whether it's Lyme or not, or whatever the label is, uh, you know, possibly can, can just start out with the symptom treatment and people can bypass that blood work. If at the end of the day, everything has a value to each person, but my experience is most people have a reason that they enjoy life. And most people go to the doctor when they can't do that. And we don't know how many people are really being cured from Lyme that get better versus just back in homeostasis and balance, right? And everything's back cool again. Like we don't, right? People could do different testing and make different claims. I'm not sure anyone really knows. And if they do, I'd love to talk to them because again, I want to know. Um, but what I do know is that there's a lot of reasons to be healthy and there's a lot of reasons to not feel healthy. And there's a lot of reasons to get back to health. And our goal at our clinic is to see people the least amount possible. 
and give people the most they could do at home. And because that's the future of healthcare, right? And so we're trying to be ahead of the curve and that's all relative. Um, but like I said, for 12 sessions over the, to teach you things for the next rest of your life or six months, it's a relative investment and we're not the right fit for everybody. Right. And if we're not the right fit on day one, we kick people out because it's, it's not the right time. Maybe we might be a better fit a year from now. Right. And right. so we don't always keep everybody because people fly from around and it's not fun to not let them stay the week. And if they really want, we let them stay, but with all, it's all about expectations. Um, but a lot of people with Lyme that I've seen, it's typically people that have been through the ringer, right? It's people that have done the therapies, know the stuff, like people that go to your event, right? It's people that aren't dumb, right? The people are intelligent. They've been experienced. They've tried a lot of different things, but they still have some form of a neurological symptom. And there's nobody in society that's trained what I'm talking about, really. It's a few of us, right? But it's going to be more the future of psychology, and it's going to be a big part of healthcare over the next 20 years. It's just a limited right now because a lot of insurance companies are like, why would we run this test? Because we have no real treatment for it. Right. Why would we do diffusion tensor imaging test? Because what are we going to do with that? You know, and exactly. so that becomes a, a, a re, wait, are waiting on research to do better. Like I have multiple patients that have done other types of stem cells, which again, aren't cheap, but they've got massive brain injuries and they feel better after stem cells. So like, I think the future is going to be mobilizing your own stem cells probably in a cost-effective way. Um, and, you know, and there's a lot of cool ways there coming out to do that. Well, you have a great team down there. I know you've assembled some, some, some amazing people and, and they're all as passionate about it as you are. And I, as you said, you're opening up your fourth location. So I would encourage everyone to reach out to Dr. Traster if you have any further questions and, and really, are ready to take the next step into um, uncovering what your Lyme, your, your neurological Lyme symptoms, you know, where they or, or originate and, and get in touch with him. And what's the best place? Where should they start, Dr. Traster? Um, probably neurologicwellnessinstitute.com. And that's our website and that's got all YouTube stuff and, you know, and Instagram neurologic wellness Institute. I think um, that's the best way to approach. We offer free phone calls um, if people want to know more. Um, but again, I'll reiterate this point. What we offer is really the future of healthcare. We're probably ahead of the curve, but you'll see our clinic will probably be more like psychology, psychiatry with physical therapy. Massage uh -huh. therapy. That's probably going to be the future connection. We're just a little bit and 20 years ahead. And as a consequence, like if we, if our, if I was a psychiatrist, we would be like world renowned. Um, as a psychologist, we would be like ahead of the curve. As a chiropractor, what's interesting is it's like, then it's kind of like I'm, people look at me skeptically, which I'm cool with. Cause like, how does a chiropractor know that? Which I get, most chiropractors don't. Um, so it's perfectly fine. I don't mind that. But it really comes down to the information and understanding that this is where the world is moving. One of the biggest areas of like health technology is brain stimulation devices. Um, you're seeing more binaural beats. You're seeing more like we talk about all those. This is where everyone's running to right now in healthcare. You see TMS for depression, right? And that's, but like this other stuff I talked to, it's a thousand the strength, one over 1,000. So when you look at like AC current, DC current, PMF, I'm talking about a thousandth the strength of TMS. That's way cheaper than TMS. But eventually people will be doing 20 minutes a day at home. You know, right now the red light therapy is probably the easiest one. Um, but like, this is all, but what's interesting is now there's, we know different wavelengths do different things, right? So higher wavelengths around 1100 is more cognition, 
you know, 640 is different. And so we're understanding what wavelengths cross a skull, what does what. And so we're like scratching the surface of all this stuff. And like, you know, I have partners going to Santa Barbara next week to get trained in technology we're hopefully going to buy soon. Um, and it's incredible, right? And it's going to be what everyone's going to do. And so this yeah. is what makes it interesting because this is, if you understand this, you could listen to any neuroscientist podcast or anything. This is what everyone's talking about. I feel like they're talking a lot about right now, a lot about energy, energy in the body and using that energy to heal yourself. And it's, it's quite a, it's a concept that you have to wrap your brain around literally, mm -hmm. but you know, the pants, you know, people ask me all the time, do they really work? I don't, I don't hear a machine working or I don't, you know, I don't feel anything when it's around me. And so I think we as human beings need to evolve to that like invisible wavelength of energy to and magnetism and all of that in order to heal our bodies. But it makes sense when you think about it from a scientific point of view. It's there, but even like there's research and I tried to buy an ultrasound machine. They won't sell it to me because I'm not a researcher and I don't have IRB, right? I'm a clinician. They won't sell it to me. So I'm going to find another one that works, but there's research on using ultrasound, like a focus ultrasound over the spleen and causing, and like not very long, 10, 20 minutes, five minutes, causing massive changes in blood immune cells, like massive anti-inflammatory responses doing oh. ultrasound over the spleen. Like, so the spleen is good for something after all. <laughs> it's crazy. So like, we're trying to buy this ultrasound machine, <laughs> try to start ultrasound. Again, if it's massive anti-inflammatory without having to take a pill. Wow. It's incredible, right? Like, so this is, what I told you, they got the stem cells without giving you stem, like the trying to make your body and brain change in a functionally positive way without drugs and surgery is where the world is at. Drugs yes. and surgery will always have their place. Um, but it's what can we do every day, 20 minutes a day to just improve brain function, right? And that can improve immune function, that can improve psychological function. Um, it's always a two-way street, you know, but I think the brain is the, the brain, the immune system, the most misunderstood, but the brain's the most misunderstood because it affects your own psychology. So, like I said, my patient's the autistic and he identifies as neurotypical, which I love, right? I love this kid. He, the way his brain works is fascinating. Um, but his psychology is dependent on his neural connections with their atypical, right? And so it creates a very interesting conversation about society. Because we're developing, like I have a kid who's two and a half, and you look around, you see like, most kids now have neuroatypical patterns as uh -huh. they develop. And so it becomes interesting as far as society who now have, we think everyone thinks the same as us, but they definitely don't. And now we have people in society who definitely don't, right? Who definitely have different motivations or incentives or things that might not be connected the same. And, but it looks like a 20 year old or a 30 year old. Right. Right. I mean, Someone they may be. They seem like they're operating at a very, very higher level of thinking. I mean, it's who knows? Every, we don't know. Everything's different. It's incredible. But it's incredible and it's fascinating because like, and again, it's not good or bad, right? right. It's just fascinating because like, I have a guy who I know we might have talked about. He hires kids on like autism, but who have a little more on the Asperger's, you know, if you want to say, I don't know if that exists anymore, but like more on that, like they have special talents. Um, and he hires them as computer programmers and engineers. And they like love it. And these kids are like super successful, make tons of money and have like a real purposeful job. Um, and but that's what I'm saying. That's what it becomes a challenge is saying it's not a good or bad. It's saying, what do you do with society who maybe are going to have trouble to work certain jobs or maybe perceive things differently where it's not going to be as easy. And, you know, this kid will be fine, but another kid might not. 
right? right? And so you just don't know a society when all of a sudden people's brains are different. It's not like everyone's got liver disease. It's that people's behaviors change and right. that could directly impact you. And you're making an assumption based on thinking that they're thinking like you think, but you can't see the connections, right? And like society right now, like you look depression, anxiety, there's a lot of connectivity study looking at brain connections. Most people for their brain have everything they need to be happy, right? You look at your basic motivations to have families, to have kids, to have success, to have a goal oriented thing, like, you know, like basic stuff right. and that should create chemicals to be happy. And people are so unhappy. They're resorting to chemical, resorting to chemicals to try to force the happiness, right? People are really happy lives, but they're alcoholics, they're drug addicts, they're addicted to foods, or they've got major issues based on a lot of reasons. Um, so we're like the most depressed and anxious society ever, but like we live in like the best time ever uh, with the most technology, the cleanest environment, as bad as it is, like sewage is amazing, right? Plumbing is amazing. Uh, that wasn't so long ago, we didn't have plumbing, right? And so it's amazing how good we have it, yet how bad we perceive it. And it comes psychological and it goes back to psychology, right? If all you hear is negative stuff every day, all day, you think things are bad. If the news and everything was positive every day and everything you saw was so happy and they focus on all the happy stuff, people would be a little happier probably. I, I like the, I like that. I like where we're going, um, you know, understanding the why of all of it and retraining the brain and really understanding that you can retrain. You are what you think and you are, I mean, that's, that's, we tell ourselves things over and over and over every single day. So I like the future. I like the future of going in that different direction and combining the two. So thank you so much for your time. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Um, you are always wonderful to have at the retreat because you're so interactive with all the, all the participants and you give so much of your time and energy. And anyway, thank you so much. And I hope to talk to you soon. Yeah, I'm just going to finalize your brain dictates your behavior. So it always goes back to your brain and something could be pressing your brain. Your brain could be normal and get bad information or your brain could have a problem, but don't forget about your brain. Thank you. Thank you. Words to live by. All right. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you.